Hello, welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. Well, I can lay claim to that title. I'm not the only fellow who can claim to be a podcaster these days. And if you don't believe me, go to our website and check it out for yourself. That is hoover.org. Click on the tab that says Publications. Go to the bottom left where it said Podcasts, and up will come a whole menu, about a dozen or so Hoover podcasts that we're doing these days. You can describe to any, you can subscribe to any or all of them. You can, uh, you'll do it through iTunes for that. You can also sign up for our monthly Pod Blast, which delivers the best for our podcast your inbox once a month. Hoover Podcast, just one asset of ideas defining a free society. Uh, before long, by the way, we're going to be adding another podcast to our lineup as a lead up to this year's election. To explain what that podcast is, I'd like to welcome today's guest, Ben Ginsburg. Ben Ginsburg is a Hoover Institution Distinguished Visiting Fellow and a nationally known political law advocate representing participants in the political process. His clients have included political parties, political campaigns, and candidates, including four of the last six Republican presidential nominees. His academic background includes being a lecturer in law at Stanford Law School, adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, and fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Good to be with you. So uh, for those who may be familiar with who you are, because if you're a news junkie like me, you've seen Ben Ginsburg on TV on the on the Alphabet Soup uh, cable networks over the years talking about elections. Uh, let's talk a bit, Ben, about you first and how exactly you got into election law for those parents who want their child to grow up and be a campaign partner <laughs> like Ben Ginsburg. How did it happen? And for those who don't want this to happen, how do they stop this? But what drew you into the world of politics, elections and the law? Well, I'd always been fascinated with politics and, in fact, spent a lot of time on my college newspaper and then worked as a reporter for five years in various papers around the country. Tried to cover as much politics as I possibly could. I didn't think I knew enough as a reporter uh, and went to law school, uh, where I quickly realized I didn't know enough as a lawyer either. But after law school, I went to work for a a firm that did media law, but there also were some lawyers there doing elections work. And that fascinated me, and I uh, volunteered as a young associate in a big law firm for a, uh, what was a chower, an hour's churning exercise in researching all the recounts in the U.S. House of Representatives, because we represented Republicans on the House Administration Committee. Um, I did the research, wrote a terrific memo for which there was absolutely no use uh, in the cycle after I wrote it. Lo and behold, two years later, uh, the McIntyre versus McCloskey bloody Indiana 8th recount uh, came about. And there I was, a little uh, young associate in a big law firm with the answer on what you do in a recount. And from there was born through pure serendipity, a career as an election. So Ben, if I'm a candidate for office, why do I need a lawyer on my campaign? Well, elections uh, for better or for worse, and I think as a philosophical matter for worse, have become a highly regulated industry. Mm -hmm. And so in fact, as a candidate, not only do you have to worry about the election laws, the contribution limits and what you can say and not say in ads and the disclaimers that you have to put on them. Um, But you're also essentially these days a small business and you're starting, it's a startup. And so uh, 
you need your friendly lawyer to be able to guide you through not only the election question, but also uh, what you do for, for essentially a small business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to worry about tax law. You have to worry about employment law. There are business law decisions to make, copyrights, trademarks. Um, the whole panoply of legal issues are important in today's campaign. So lo and behold, surprisingly enough, there is a need for lawyers in uh, in election. So it sounds like the word you're looking for is compliance. Yes, compliance, but but also uh, sort of the best election lawyers I find are ones who uh, understand the world of politics. And so compliance uh, in the way elections work today and the way the enforcement agencies work uh, and can often be a source of great creativity. You need a lawyer to help you with that as well. Do you think elections have become too litigious, Ben? Yeah, totally. I mean, there, there is much about what our elections have become today that's problematic. Um, certainly the laws on what candidates can raise is a problem because candidates are no longer the the loudest voice in the room, that there are outside groups who, at least in theory, are not supposed to coordinate with the candidates, uh, who actually can define the issues on which candidates run. That's kind of wrong. Uh, there are so many laws involved now, including the rights of voters to vote and uh, fraud questions, uh, suppression questions, that, uh, yeah, campaigns are far too litigious today. Okay, let's talk about the podcast now. So the title is called Saints, Sinners, and Salvageables, Restoring America's Faith in Voting. Uh, the title of that, Saints, Sinners, and Salvageables, comes from a phrase that was repeated often then at a conference that you were a part of uh, back in June, I believe, um, at Hoover. And I attended that, and I was struck by what a remarkable turnout it was. Not only was our director, Condoleezza, uh, Condoleezza Rice, was there, we had the Secretary of State of Georgia, who's led a rather interesting existence the last couple of years. Uh, we had the chief elections official from Maricopa County. We had uh, people involved in elections in likes of Virginia, very contentious states. It was a very impressive title. But then who are St. Sinners and Salvageables when we're talking about elections? Well, that that really is a phrase that um, was used, I think, not by an elections official, but embraced by elections officials. Yes. To describe voters. There are uh, voters who um, understand uh, the place of voting and the right to vote uh, in our society. There are some sinners who are uh, taking the traditional normative processes of voting and uh, sort of weaponizing them. The 2020 election is a pretty good example of that. Uh, And the salvageables, I think, refers to a group that is sympathetic to the sinners, but uh, once they get to understand elections and the way they work, uh, can be great supporters of elections and the accuracy of elections. Mm-hmm. And has it always been this way in American politics, Ben? Because I can I can point you to presidential elections in the first decade of the 19th century that were bitter and contested and just ugly affairs. Well, this is beyond the bitterness. I mean, we do have a rich history in this country of um, colorful campaigns, shall we say. But throughout all the, those campaigns, there was a universal agreement 
that the results are accurate and that people are accepting of the results. Because the way the, the our system of government works is the losers have to accept the results. That the peaceful transfer of power is the hallmark of the American experiment with democracy. And uh, in the past few years, the doubts, the false doubts that have been cast upon the accuracy of elections um, uh, is, is categorically different than where we were before, even in the most contested and uh, underhanded of campaigns. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how we got this way. Uh, a lot of people would point to the Florida controversy in 2000, which you are part of a, a Republican Democratic presidential campaign squaring off over the vote counting in that state. Is is Florida, Ben, is that the genesis of this or is that just kind of something that stands out on the landscape? Florida was the genesis of what you referred to before, a greater amount of litigation yeah. uh, in campaigns. Um, and Florida was a remarkably close election uh, at a time that cable TV was was just sort of hitting its stride. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Internet was just sort of being born. Email was just being born. And so what happened in Florida because of the closeness and the high stakes in determining the president mm -hmm. focused people on politics and the potential litigious nature. But Florida is categorically different in a number of ways from what happened in, in 2020. For one thing, the Florida election was really close. Right. And I was representing uh, George W. Bush in that, and we recognized that the election was close. 537 votes in one state determining the president of the United States. 2020 was not close that the narrowest margin between Donald Trump and Joe Biden was 10,000-some votes in Arizona. Uh, and it went up from there. And as somebody who's done an awful lot of recounts, uh, you rarely make up 500 votes in a recount, let alone 10,000. So that was very different. The other difference um, was that the loser accepted the results. Al Gore um, acted in the tradition of previous presidents in tight elections and said, we fought our hardest. Uh, the Supreme Court has spoken. Uh, this, for the good of the country, this is over. Richard Nixon did much the same thing in 1960. Right. Both those races were a lot closer uh, than 2020 was. Uh, and and again, the parties in, in 2000, I think if George W. Bush had gone down uh, and trailed in the count, he also would have accepted the result. And Donald Trump not accepting the results while saying without any evidence that elections are fraudulent and rigged is categorically different and puts us in different territories. Right. So I'd point out, Ben, that first of all, we're in kind of an odd stretch of uh, political history right now. Twice now in the last uh, five presidential elections, this would be 2000 and 2016, the winner prevailed in the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. So that is that's dismaying for some people. Uh, it begins the trope of selected, not elected. It brings a president's legitimacy into question. Um, 
Second thing I'd point to you, Ben, is the nature of voting itself in that you look at election nights and election nights are kind of different in America right now because of people voting by mail. You get early returns. A candidate jumps to a very large lead. This is what happened to Trump. He was ahead on election night. And then votes get counted and more votes get counted as the election goes on and the night goes into day and the other candidate catches up. And this is what happened to uh, you know, Trump in 2016. Hillary caught him, passed him in the popular vote. It happened again in 2020 with Biden. So that's also kind of dismaying to voters right now. They don't understand why the lead changes like that. And so it kind of brings out the worst in people, which leads to the third challenge here, I think, Ben, which is that we have become a conspiracy society. And if you've been following this whole January 6th situation, as I have too, there are just so many, and this is the problem with the internet, which was not around in force, as you mentioned in 2000. There are just so many crazy rumors just permeating the internet stories of ballots being stolen in the dead of night. Uh, here in California, Ben, during the recall election, there was a popular rumor uh, last fall going around that the Secretary of State had purposely set up the ballots in such a way where an election official could see the mail ballot and see how somebody voted. So if they voted to recall the governor or get tossed out, it's just what conspiratorial minds go to, Ben. So this to me is part of the challenge here as we're going to talk about um, election reform moving forward. It's how to get people to, to stop drinking the Kool-Aid, stop believing everything you read on the internet about how elections are handled. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a, a interesting phenomenon in the American election system that is sort of a, an accident of institutional design. We have well over 10,000 jurisdictions in this country responsible for the casting and counting of ballots. Um, if you were designing that today, you would probably want some more uniformity in all of that, more equal protection for all voters. Uh, so that that is that is a something that undergirds our system today that that really should be looked at in more of a long term um, pattern. But your description uh, of where we are today really rings true. I mean, I think mail balloting has been around uh, for a really really long time, uh, and Republicans have always done really well with mail ballot. So it was a little disconcerting and maybe counterproductive for the 2020 candidate to be saying, don't vote by mail, right. especially at a time of a pandemic, which just made everything categorically different. And as a matter of health and safety, really, more people voted by mail. It is a fair policy question to ask going forward whether uh, any of the changes that were put in place for 2000 should be kept in, in 2024. And among those changes are, are what you mentioned, which is election day stretches long past the election. Right. And it seems to me that one of the sensible reforms would be to require all mail ballots to be in on election so that they are processed with the ballots cast on election day to basically um, reduce this phenomenon of a blue wave and a red mirage. 
Yeah, and here in California, it's very complicated, Ben, because we uh, give everybody, a if you're a registered voter, you get a ballot automatically in the mail. And so the count gets very screwy. And on what you see on election night, it's not what you see a few days later. Uh, I point you to the mayor's race in Los Angeles, which is a great example of this. On uh, election night uh, and the day after, um, uh, Rick Caruso, who's a Democrat, formerly a Republican independent, a billionaire businessman running kind of an outsider in that race, uh, he had the most votes. and reporters. Wow, what an earthquake in Los Angeles. But then as more votes came flooding into California and the Los Angeles, guess what? Karen Bass, who's a congresswoman, you might remember, Ben, she was on uh, Biden's shortlist for vice president mm-hmm. in 2020. She goes ahead. And so it kind of creates sloppy journalism on top of that. Reporters just always want to kind of you know, jump jump as fast as they can in a story. Don't think, wait a second, we better wait, you know, 72 hours before we really start processing the vote count. Yeah, it's a little Pavlovian to want results on election day. Um, but also understandable because it's presented as a contest, uh, and you want to know you want to know the winner. I mean, mm-hmm. California uh, has a particularly quaint system in the way ballots come in. I think it's up to a week after election day. Yes. It may be counted three or four weeks after election day. Just imagine that if you had a tight presidential race where California was outcome determinative. And the country went for three or four weeks with the uncertainty you mentioned in just the Los Angeles mayor's race. That would be a real recipe for uh, for trouble. So I think some of the um, reforms, erstwhile reforms that have been put in place are actually counterproductive to an orderly election system and probably should be looked at again. And who is Seaboard and Gray? Steve Boyden Gray is a, a legendary conservative lawyer. He was counsel to President George H.W. Bush uh, and has continued uh, to be very active in uh, conservative circles, bringing a lot of landmark cases on constitutional matters. Yeah, I think eminence grease is one way to describe him. He is an elder statesman. Uh, he was a former White House counsel. I think you and I joked one night at dinner. I asked you about being a White House counsel, and I <laughs> don't think you quite spat out your food, but you didn't like the idea of being a White House counsel, as I remember. Oh, I think I think uh, it can be a terrific job, and I think very much uh, it depends on the administration and the range of issues that you uh, that you get to handle. And some presidents have restricted the role more than others. Right. Uh, I think it's a great job, Ben, until your party gets crushed in the midterm election. And then as the White House counsel, you're now forever responding to subpoenas for the next 18 months of your life. But I mentioned yeah, uh, well, C. Boyden, I mentioned C. Boyden Gray, Ben, because he uh, wrote something last year about H.R. 1. This is the For the People Act, uh, which passed in the House, stalled in the Senate. And Mr. Gray called H.R. 1 a, quote, constitutional disaster in the making. And he wrote the following, Ben, quote, Congress has only a secondary concurrent power over congressional elections and even smaller role in presidential elections and no specific role in state elections at all. So why was Boyden Gray so fired up about H.R. 1? H.R. 1 was an attempt by Democrats to sort of change the world and tilt the playing field perpetually in their favor. Um, It was a 900-page bill, and um, it, it, it ultimately didn't pass because Uh, The Democrats allowed every interest group and every member to put on his or her special 
uh, provision that they thought would change the world for the better. So it became a really unwieldy mass. Um, and it also was a highly political book. There were some provisions that were actually uh, pretty good and should have been acceptable, but it got so larded up with pet projects in a way that, that was designed to give the Democrats political supremacy uh, that it was destined to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, enter Joe Manchin, who offered this compromise. Ben, he uh, thought the middle road for Congress would be the following. Automatic voter registration through state motor vehicle departments. Second, mandate at least 15 days of early voting for federal elections, which you alluded to earlier. Third, ban partisan gerrymandering. Fourth, make election day a public holiday. I'm not sure I agree with that. If you're going to have 15 days to vote ahead of time, I'm not sure why you need an entire day off on top of that. Uh, Manchin also uh, supports the concept of voter ID with what he called, quote, allowable alternatives, such as utility bill to provide identity to the polling place. What's wrong with uh, Manchin's proposal, if anything, Ben? Well, there, there are a few that were uh, that, that had some problems with them. Um, the 15 days of early voting is pretty interesting. Um, one of the, the reasons that H.R. 1 sort of died on the vine was that they kind of forgot to talk to any actual election administrators and elections officials. Mm-hmm. To put these bills together. No state has 15 days of early voting, meaning that every day, every state would have had to change its procedure. Um, what's interesting about it, uh, and I was, I co-chaired a bipartisan commission on election administration to look at ways to make voting better. And we talked to an awful lot of election administrators, and they said, above anything else, one size does not fit all. That's true between states and it's true within states. And 15 days is just not particularly practical. That was born of uh, attempts in some Republican states to reduce early voting, Georgia being the most prominent example. Uh Georgia wanted to reduce its early voting from 26 days to 24 days, which was uh, among the reasons Joe Biden uh, said the law was Jim Crow 2.0. Mm-hmm. Just a slight problem with that, in that the very non-Republican states of Connecticut, New, New, New York, New Jersey, and oh yes, Joe Biden, Delaware, allow only 10 days of early voting. So that seems to be wildly inconsistent. Uh, again, not at all responsive to any state's particular needs, just a completely arbitrary federal uh, number that was made up. It was very interesting that uh, the bill included barring partisan gerrymandering. That came after the Democrats, through their National Democratic Redistricting Trust, spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $500 million in 2018, 2020 to win state legislatures. So they, in fact, could gerrymander. Right. The problem that they had was that the, the policy positions the Democrats ran under did not resonate with the voters. Remember the vote in the democracy. And so, in fact, the Democrats failed despite that, um, that uh, impressive amount of money to win any, um, to win any uh, legislative chambers. So then they wanted to bar partisan gerrymandering since they were in such bad shape. Uh, Political. So 
those are just some of the reasons that um, that uh, the bill was was always destined to fail. So if Congress is going to be in the business, Ben, of um, making standards for elections, what should the state, should there be any standards coming out of Congress? Does Congress have a role to play here, Ben, or should we just trust the 50 states to do their own thing? Well, again, I think you have to remember that uh, one size does not fit all. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that we have really done pretty well as a country in leaving this up to, to the states to determine what's best for them. Uh, I think that's the constitutionally grounded language so that uh, I, I think it's problematic to try and uh, to try and have federal legislation in this particular area. Uh, problematic in part because one party is going to, unless it's truly bipartisan, one party is going to try to put their thumb on the scale. Yeah, and therefore it just won't work. Okay, so I've tried to make you a White House counsel. I'm going to give you an even worse job. I'm going to make you a member <laughs> of Congress now. And I want Congressman Ginsburg or Senator Ginsburg to tell me how we're going to fix the Electoral Count Act, because we have a problem with the 12th Amendment, Ben. And there is a legal loophole that people like you like to find a way through. Uh, some lawyers have tried this. They tried to convince uh, Mike Prince to go down this road. If you look at the 12th Amendment, it says that the vice president uh, shall, quote, open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted. And some fertile legal minds have said, well, you can open all the certificates, but it doesn't say whose certificates necessarily. In other words, it gives the vice president the ability for he or she to kind of certify whatever vote she wants to. And so uh, this has to be cleaned up. How would you fix this, Ben? Well, a couple of things to note. First of all, the Electoral Count Act uh, the full title is the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Yes. So it was written in a very different era. If uh, anyone is is watching the Gilded Age on television, you know just how different the language and cadence was. It is an antiquated law with very muddled language. Right. And uh, that is reason alone enough mm -hmm. to, to fix the bill. Um, but the events of 2020 also showed that um, there were some sort of deliberately chosen ambiguities uh, that could use some fixing up. So one of the interesting things about the Electoral Count Act and why I think there is a strong chance that there will be a revised version is that neither party can really figure out how to gain the Electoral Count Act. Because after all, uh, you may know in 2024 who the vice president's going to be, but you don't know for future uh, right. years. And you don't know who's going to control Congress. Neither party can tell if their candidate's going to be ahead or behind uh, in the Electoral College, which, of course, impacts the way you might want to play something like that. So knowing that there are uh, ambiguities in an antiquated law, it should be fixed. Uh, among the items where I think there is uh, general agreement in Congress is to clarify, although I think it's pretty clear now, the role of the vice president. Mm -hmm. That is not a subjective job. Congress is not a national recount board in the, the eyes of the Constitution or the 12th Amendment. Uh, there is a very low threshold for raising objections to electors, one member of the House, one member of the Senate, which right. it is a pretty easy and I think universally agreed change to 
to raise those thresholds. Question whether that's 20% of, of each chamber or a third or 50% or a supermajority, that, uh, that'll be worked out behind the, uh, the closed door caucuses of the, uh, of the Senate and the House. Um, I think there are a couple of troublesome issues here. One is uh, exactly what you do in the situation of rogue actors in the states. Suppose, for example, a governor uh, refuses to certify the winner of the popular vote and instead certifies the second place challenger. There, there, is there a right of appeal to them? Or if a county uh, decides not to certify its vote because it doesn't like the way the state as a whole is turning out, so the state totals are incomplete and there's no certification. So there needs to be a clear right of appeal that candidates can use. And the question is whether you need a new federal cause of action to do that, or you just put some expedited provisions in existing law so that it goes directly to a three-judge court and then with a quick right of appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, all in time for uh, the meeting of the Electoral College and the opening of the votes on on January 6th. But again, because uh, you can't really game the system uh, in, in terms of the Electoral College, there is hope for reform of the antiquated law. Right. So, Ben, this gets in the kind of true and false nature of of, uh, of what you study and also the uh, concern versus hysteria aspect. We look at Pennsylvania, for example. Doug Mastriano is the Republican nominee for governor. He is MAGA, to say the least, that would be an understatement to call him MAGA. He is ultra MAGA. I sound Joe Biden now. Uh, Mastriano is very much the camp of Donald Trump. And people will say, my God, if you elect this man governor, he's going to topple the electoral count in Pennsylvania. But can a governor do that on his own bed? Well, a governor could refuse to certify mm -hmm. uh, if he didn't like the result of the popular vote. Uh, or he or she could certify the second place winner, as I mentioned before, so that a governor um, could, uh, as a bad actor, ignore the laws of the state and, uh, and certify just whoever they wanted. Now, it's my view that in the current law, there are appeals to the courts that would handle that situation mandamus action to require the governor to do his sworn duty of certifying the winner under state law. Um, but, you know, bad actors can cause crises. And, and so you, you do need to be sure that there are provisions in the law that allow for that situation to be settled out. I would think a court would jump in right away, for example, getting back to the vice president. If a vice president some way played fast and loose the electoral college count, I imagine, Ben, the Supreme Court very quickly would weigh in on the constitutionality of what the vice president did. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because there is uh, a separation of powers and there are political question doctrines right. that the Supreme Court has, has raised. So we would certainly be in new territory. And, you know, the easiest way to make a decision is to say you don't have authority to make a decision. Right. 
No, that's true. But they'd have to act fast because if we go back to 2020, so this all happened on January the 6th. That's two weeks before inaugural day. Back in 2000 with Florida, Ben, that was resolved on about the 17th of December, I think, or thereabouts. Yep. Just in time for the Electoral College Safe Harbor, uh, which is a day that's never been enforced in court, but is sort of a custom and norm of the law. It says if the, if the electors meet and certify the results by a certain day, then Congress cannot uh, jump in and interfere. Okay, so St. Senators and Salvageables, Ben, this is you at the microphone. You're going to be running these conversations. Congratulations. You get to discover the joys of <laughs> moderating a podcast. I'm looking forward to listening to them. Uh, this is going to be a multi-part uh, series of podcasts, uh, so not just one podcast, but a whole bunch of uh, different topics. Uh, let's go through a few of those, Ben. Um, what do we mean, first of all, by the institution of voting? When you use the phrase institution of voting, what does that mean? That's what uh, you and millions of other of your fellow citizens do to cast ballots uh, on election day. Um, but it's also the, the counting of the ballots and then the certification of results so that there are winners and losers and uh, the person who wins the popular vote is in office mm -hmm. and there is a peaceful transfer of power when uh, when that's necessary. Okay. Um, public faith in the institution of voting. Let's talk about public faith for a minute. Well, look, public faith is uh, the losers accept the results of the election. And more than that, that the people in the country do believe that their elections are run accurately. And of course, a lot of the trauma that we're going through right now in the country has to do with the fact that about 30% of the country does not believe that election results are accurate. And that can be a really damaging phenomenon for the, the basic institutions of the democracy. Um, you mentioned the conference that we had at Stanford in June. And, you know, one of the things that that came out of that from the elections officials was a recognition of the need for a great deal of transparency in the way votes are tabulated. Right. So I think that one of the things that we'll be talking about on, a lot on the podcast and trying to put into practice for the elections is to urge uh, administrators to be very available to the community for people who want to see exactly how ballots are sent out, how they're counted, uh, how the certification process takes place, mm -hmm. uh, to see all the safeguards that actually do exist uh, in the system. And I think if people see all those safeguards, they will in turn have greater faith in the accuracy of an election. You know, Ben, when we talk about Congress at all times, the phrase nimbyism comes in because what is nimbyism in terms of Congress? I hate Congress. I hate the way Congress does its business, but I'm about to vote in my member of Congress for their 30th straight year in Washington. In other words, the problem's not in my backyard. The problem is elsewhere. Do you 
think? Do you happen to know? Is it just your sense as as different residents of different states look at the election systems in their states? Do they think that their state is okay and the other states are messed up? Or I'm thinking of Georgia, for example. Did Georgians run around convinced that they're in the middle of Jim Crow 2.0, or is that really more the function of outside forces? Well, I think it was more the function of outside forces in, in the case of Georgia. Um, but there is a phenomenon where people say there something was wrong with the elections in that other state, even if it's not true in my state. And the elections officials that, that we talked to at, at Hoover um, pretty much uniformly said that was a problem. But there is doubt now within communities. Uh, really, it's become quite partisan, but there are doubts. Uh, and those do need to be addressed to restore the system. Yeah, let's look at Georgia for a second, Ben, for all the talk about how it was Jim Crow 2.0 and just one vast exercise of suppressing the vote. What happened on a primary day in Georgia this year? About 1.9 million people turned out to vote, as opposed to 1.2 million people who voted in the primary in 2018. So if there was an extra, if it was an exercise of suppression, it failed mightily. But here's an interesting statistic for you, Ben. So in California, in 2018, 22% of voters cast their ballots before Election Day. In 2022, that figure fell to 15%. And this is in a state, as I mentioned, it has universal voting by mail. Here's what I think is important, Ben, that we overlook in elections. Choice and competition matter mightily. If you are voting in Georgia this year, you have two very sexy races to vote in. One is Georgia, where you have Governor uh, Governor, we have Governor Kemp up against Stacey Abrams. Or on the Senate side, you have Raphael Warnick and Herschel Walker. Elections in California statewide bet have not been competitive since, boy, about the time of Ronald Reagan, it seems. So um, I think that's one of the factors here. You need to give people better races and just kind of a sense that the vote actually matters. Yeah, there's a, a growing body of academic research to back that up, though, mm-hmm. in that what really matters for turnout is not the laws, but the candidates and how involved and interested people are in the um, in the races. And that really was the story of the 2020 election, too. I mean, it was an election that took place in the middle of the pandemic where people were not gathering for many things. But it also involved um, a candidate in Donald Trump who certainly stirred the passions of the electorate, both in his supporters and his opponents. And so in spite of the, the handicaps of the pandemic in terms of people going out and doing things like voting, uh, people did because of the candidates mm-hmm. involved. And I think you saw that in the Georgia primary. Okay, uh, let's talk about elections now for a moment. Uh, that seems to me comes in all kinds of shapes and forms. I can point you to Gore Lieberman people who are convinced that they won that election. I could probably point you to uh, Nixon Cabot Lodge supporters in 1960, if they're still with us, who believe that Nixon won that election. But in this day and age, Ben, election denial takes all kinds of shapes and forms. There are people who will fly their flags upside down on inaugural day, claiming that the election is bogus. There are people who will storm the Capitol. There are people like Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, and the crazy former teacher from Ohio who go around the country giving talks on election fraud. How do you describe election denial? Election denial is saying that elections aren't accurate unless your candidate wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's the real danger. I mean, the real danger is you fight as hard as you possibly can 
in the recount and contest phase, and you do uh, raise the flaws that you see in an election, the irregularities. That's part of the process. It's important to have vehicles to air those. Um, but you also uh, have an obligation when you bring those contests to accept the results uh, that come from those contests. And election denial is availing yourself of the legal processes to question an election, but still denying the end product if you just happen not to like uh, the, the result. Okay. And to the uh, phrase, stop the steal, Ben, is there such a thing as a steal in American elections? Can you actually go out there and steal an election? Uh, I think you can certainly never steal an election on a national basis. Mm -hmm. I think there are unfortunate incidents that come to life very infrequently um, where people do go out and uh, try and fraudulently impact the results. I mean, that is. That, that happens. There are bad apples in every bunch, and elections are no, are no different. But uh, if you're going to say that there is a steal, you have to offer evidence. You have to be able to produce the evidence. And uh, in those instances that I talked about where there's fraud, there were, there were convictions, and so there was evidence. So far, uh, since the 2020 election, there has been no substantive evidence of fraud or irregularities that would change the results. Yet, uh, the stop the steal chant uh, continues to this day, and that's what's having the corrosive effect uh, on the country. Mm -hmm. Another topic I know you want to explore, Ben, is does your vote count? Are elections reliable? Yeah, we, we will bring in uh, election officials, along with some people in the Stop the Steal movement, to discuss them. Uh, in other words, I think it's important when, when describing the institution of voting to get the election deniers uh, making their case and election officials responding to that and showing why there are safeguards in the system today that stop the stealing of elections. And we'll also talk about the burden of proof in those cases, which is real both in the sense of an individual action in court, but also more, more broadly speaking on the policy debate and the stop the steal. You know, is it stop the steal or a big lie? I know you want to explore uh, state laws uh, beyond Georgia, and I imagine you're going to talk about Arizona, which I'm looking at right now. The Justice Department, Ben, I understand, is challenging uh, a new Arizona law. I think it's HB 2492 for those who want to look it up. Uh, with that law, does Ben, it requires anyone who wants to vote in a presidential election or vote by mail in any election to provide proof of citizenship. And you have an odd double standard in Arizona right now where there are people who can vote in um, state elections, uh, federal elections, where you don't need proof of uh, ID, but not in state contests, about 30,000 people right now who are in this odd category. So um, you look at this clash between the federal and state uh, uh, systems, Ben, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I think in this case, probably the, the federal, the DOJ will um, will prevail in this. There have been other similar cases uh, around the country on state requirements like this. And uh, 
by and large, that's the way they've come out. Okay. And then finally, uh, turnout battles. You want to you talk about turnout battles and fraud versus suppression, which is voting by mail versus in-person, post-election voting tabulation and so forth. Well, in fraud and suppression, we'll get into the basic uh, battles between the parties where Republicans see fraud and Democrats see suppression. And it is not clear that either is right. Uh, in fact, fraud versus suppression has now uh, migrated into the turnout models that both parties use. And uh, if that is a myth, then a lot of the conflict that we see around voting today, including the litigation we did. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Ben, it seems to me that I think I've told you this before. I think the system needs more sort of evaporate, neither fraud or suppression is right. really there. I think one thing the system needs, Ben, is a cleanse, if you will. And the cleanse would be in a very decisive presidential election where there's just no room for recounts and no questioning about moving 5,000 votes here or there. A blowout. I'm not advocating either party, but if you go back in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan twice crushed his opposition, each time winning over 40 states. I think George H.W. Bush in 1988, I think you were part of that campaign, uh, he won 40 states, I believe, and something like 424 electoral votes. Uh, Barack Obama, I think, got 361 electoral votes and um, a very solid portion of the majority. So there was just really, these were decisive outcomes. So very hard to talk about fraud and the whole system being rigged when somebody just wins in a very dominant fashion. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, the the way to, to cleanse sort of dysfunctional charges in the system is electoral Outcome. That is the way it should work. It should not be like laws that that necessarily tilt the one party. It is letting the voters speak uh, as the proper way to to deal with all these issues. Yeah, I suggest another formal polling. I don't want to get on the wrong side of our uh, friend and colleague, Doug Rivers here, who does this for a living, but maybe we need to be more judicious with political polls. There's just way too much data thrown at voters, and they become convinced that Hillary Clinton's going to win by 10 points, and Donald Trump's going to win by five points. And when the numbers don't jibe on election day, that feeds people's suspicious minds. Yeah, it does. And, you know, it's I, I, I have a great deal of sympathy for my friends, the pollsters, because, of course, they go out and they ask a lot of people questions, but they realize that the sample of people they've talked to may not necessarily be reflective of the electorate. But of course, in advance, who knows what the electorate, the makeup of the electorate is going to be. So they do some, some subtle adjustments. And that's a pretty tough thing to get right, uh, as we've seen in the last few elections. And so there is a steady diet of the polls show this or the polls show that that set expectations. And that feeds into a bit of the election dysfunction we're talking about. And then finally, Ben, maybe just uh, individuals need to show a little more steel when it comes to this. And I'm thinking of those corporations and entities that completely freaked out over Georgia's exercise in voter reform. Uh, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, Major League Baseball, moving the All-Star game from Georgia to Colorado, which I think has even more restrictive voting laws than Georgia, if I'm not mistaken. So just this kind of playing into the hysteria of the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a danger um, because. Uh, there is so much more focus on elections these days. And so uh, 
and with you know when we've talked about in other contexts the the ability to communicate uh through the internet and other means these days uh put things in kind of a different realm and yeah there are there there's there certainly is a um uh, a complex of people who on both sides of the aisle who need a crisis to keep their financial models going. And that tends to keep the debate going for a long time. That's well put. So final question, I'm going to put you on the spot. We're approaching the 2022 midterm election. Ben, point me to a state which has got its act together vis-a-vis 2020, or just show me a change in voting in America in 2022 that's going to be an improvement upon 2020. Uh, well, I think the state of Georgia actually uh, showed that its new law in the primary was quite effective in providing uh, accurate results for an unanticipatedly large number of people turning out. Uh, and so I would I would look to that to be a model. Um, you know, I I I think it is useful and instructive for people to look at the states that do all their counting on election night and the states that don't. Pennsylvania is a state where they're not allowed to process absentee ballots until election day, which means their results will be very late. Um, A state that I would point you to that, that really has run excellent elections is Florida. Right, a disaster in 2000. Uh, by 2020, the results were known by 9:30 at night. Everyone went home. There was no questioning uh, of the results. Uh, so there are, and, and then you know the other model is the states that vote entirely by mail. You need to look at the Colorados and the Utahs and the Washingtons and the Oregons. Uh, and Hawaii's to see how they do with entire vote by mail uh, election. Mm-hmm. Well, but uh, just to build upon what you just said, what did Florida do right? What did Florida do to fix the 2000 situation? Uh, first of all, they changed their equipment. Uh, it's really important for uh, there to be paper trails on right. all machines. Uh, Florida has. Uh, runs its elections by county, mm-hmm. but they formed an extremely strong uh, uh, group of elections officials that all the county election officials belong to. So there is a, a great deal of uniformity. They make it easy to register uh, through online registration, which, you know, it, it, in my mind, it's much better to do, to let people register, register online because people are putting in their own information opposed to filling out a card that then has to be transcribed by uh, somebody sitting in the bowels of an election office. Uh, And so they do that very well. Uh, And uh, they process their absentee ballots, don't release the figures, but process them in advance. And they got good equipment. Okay. So they got their act together. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you think we're going to have a clean midterm? (laughs) I think that there is um, an awful lot of controversy stirring up about the midterms. Mm -hmm. So as anything else in this great country, 
It's going to vary widely by state. Uh, and I think that most states will do it quite well, but there will be questions uh, about others. Okay. And the final, final question I promise here, since we haven't said his name the whole podcast, it's like Beetlejuice, Donald Trump. And if Donald I've Trump. Heard of him. Yes, you've heard of him. You might be familiar with his work. If Donald Trump is not running for president in 2024, Ben. Are we having a conversation about voting fraud and voting reform, or does it go away with Trump? Um, I think that you're going to see in 2022 a number of election denier candidates on the ballot. Right. And so their success or lack of success will determine, I think, a great deal uh, about the saliency of the issue come 2024. And as you were alluding to before, the vote in 2024 will, um, will determine whether this becomes a perpetual feature of our country with a sort of a a consistent eroding of the fundamentals or whether we get through this in strong shape. And I imagine you're looking at particular Secretary of State's races. Yes, Secretary of State's races are really important. Uh, you know, the people who count the votes need to be seen as calling balls and strikes, right. as, being, as being the umpire. And if you have a Secretary of State who does not certify an election despite the vote of the people. In other words, takes away the vote right. from, from voters. Uh, you're going to have real long-term fundamental problems in the country, especially when it comes to 2024, and we get into what is likely to be a pretty tight presidential election. Yeah, right, Ben. This will be a real interesting question about Trump's potency. I'd point people to the uh, Colorado Secretary of State's race for Tina Peters, who was a county clerk, and she was uh, very much on the Trump side of um, stop the steal and voter fraud. She lost in the primary to a woman named Pam Anderson. So uh, it would seem that while Trump is certainly getting a lot of mileage out of this, a lot of other people surrounding Trump, like Mike Lindell, I mentioned others, voters maybe don't see it the same way he does. Yeah, and of course, Georgia was an overwhelming defeat for the former president, where Brad Raffensperger, uh, he of the famous call from Donald Trump to find 11,000 and some more votes, uh, won a pretty comfortable uh, victory, as did Brian Kemp, as governor, who certified. So uh, the former president's record with election deniers is mixed so far this cycle. Yeah, and that's kind of the challenge for the body politic writ large, uh, Ben, in this regard. Uh, we can focus on 2020 and January 6th and the count and the so-called stop the steal, or we can move forward. And my concern is that too many people on both sides of the aisle are focused with 2020. Uh, it suits Donald Trump's political needs. It also suits Democrats' needs to keep evoking Donald Trump. And I'm just concerned that our political system is not actually focused enough on the upcoming elections, what should be done. Well, I think what should be done is to, is to, as you say, keep the eye on the prize. I mean, uh, speaking from a Republican conservative perspective, uh, there are a whole bunch of really good conservative uh, policy solutions to the, the ailments of the country right now that aren't getting talked about, aren't getting developed, uh, aren't being implemented, because we're talking about false charges from an election past. 
And, and you know, I, I think that doesn't make sense for the Republican Party as a whole. And I think it's da- even more important, it's damaging to the country. Yeah, and it's going to cost some people their careers. I don't think I'd live to see the day when I might actually talk about somebody named Cheney losing a race in Wyoming. But, you know, this is a good example of how this issue can just kind of chew you up politically and spit you out. Yeah, and is that really a good thing for the Republican Party or for the United States? That's good. Well, Ben, welcome to the world of podcasting. I hope you understand what you've taken on here, but I certainly look forward to you uh, doing this, listening to them. And I think it's just a fascinating topic. And thanks for coming to Hoover and doing this for us. Well, thank you, Bill. It's uh, It's been a pleasure to be affiliated uh, with Hoover. And I look forward to, uh, to the next year and through the 2024 election. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I don't think you'll find Ben Ginsburg on Twitter. There are a lot of people named Ben Ginsburg on Twitter, but not uh, not the gentleman we're talking to today. But you can find him on Hoover's website, the same one I mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, which is Hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Ben and his colleagues through inbox weekdays. And keep an eye out for the launch of Saints, Centers, and Salvageables, Restoring America's Faith and Voting. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.